Hey there, it's Gary Parrish. It's Wednesday, September 5th, 2018. Welcome back to the Eye on College Basketball Podcast. Matt Norlander is here with me. Hope you guys had a nice Labor Day weekend. Hope you enjoyed the first weekend of college football. Hope you didn't flip out on any women like Nick Saban. Norlander, what's up with it? You uh, still waiting on that baby to arrive? Still waiting on the baby to arrive. And, you know, last night we we get into, uh, like, we're really getting down to this, right? We, I don't know if it's a boy or if it's a girl. So I get into some names here, and can I, before we get into the college stuff we're going to talk about, can I just give you the names that she tossed out and she eliminated? And I want, since you know that these names will not be the name of my child, um, mm-hmm. you can give me an honest response whether you think that they are good names or bad names? Sure. Okay. Uh and obviously, this goes without saying that ultimately the decision is going to be hers. But I'm really trying my damnedest to uh, to get one that we both really, really like. So, girls-wise, here's what I did. I looked up a whole bunch, and then I looked up how popular they were. So, what I did not realize was Charlotte is, like, skyrocketing up these charts. Charlotte is so popular that it had to get knocked out. What are your thoughts? That's my mother-in-law's first name. I love the name, but it's uh, it's funny how those things things work. It's it's so popular at this point that uh, it's too popular. Same thing with Emily. I didn't think Emily would be as popular as it is, but it ranks twelfth as of twenty seventeen according to the United States uh, Social Security database. What are your thoughts on Emily? I like Emily. It's a nice sort of clean, simple, like not really trendy name because it's been a name forever. Like mm-hmm. Emily's been around forever. Like I grew up with Emily's. I got no issue with Emily. I don't know that I would name my daughter Charlotte, but I'm not, like, against it. It doesn't offend me. But I, I, I would go Emily before Charlotte. Okay. A name I absolutely love, but I can't do it because there's too many consonants, uh, is Veronica. You can't – Veronica Norlander sounds like Veronica Corningstone from Anchorman, so that can't <laughs> happen. But I love the name Veronica, so that's out. Two names that my wife was like, this isn't 1954, are Lois – because I've I, you don't see many Loises out there, and Audrey, which I think is a beautiful name, but she's like, nope, get it out of there. And another one that I like, this one wasn't even in the top 1,000. It stunned me, but I I tossed this out her, and she's like, this isn't 1984. I threw out Jody, and, and then I had no idea that Jody is completely out of fashion, like not even remotely popular anymore. Do you Andy like Joe? Yeah, no, no, yeah. Definitely not Jody. Veronica's fine, if only because you don't really bump into too many Veronicas. But, like, yeah, Veronica Norlander, it's, like, too much. Too yeah. much going on there. Um, the, our approach to naming uh, our children was always I had veto power, but ultimately it was the wife's pick. So she would come up with a name, and I'd say, nah, I hate that. And then that name would be eliminated. But, but if she... If she said a name that I liked, I'd say, okay, that's cool. Then we'd keep it on the list. And then ultimately she would, she would make the uh, – the, 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 like the idea that two people can sit down and just sort of brainstorm on this and like not fight. Is, <laughs> no. It, it doesn't – yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. So like we tried that initially and then I, I finally said, listen, let's stop talking about this. Because especially when you get you know your, your first child, maybe even second. By the time you get to third, it's like whatever. Who cares? Name it whatever you want. But – um, you, you, you have these ideas like, Hey, let's, let's sit down and like, you know, have a cup of coffee and, and like, let's think about, you know, go through names and it just ends up in an argument every time. So you just completely ignore that. And you say, listen, you brainstorm on your own time. And when you come up with a name you like, send it to me and I'll either say, yeah, that's okay. Or I'll veto it. And then we'll keep going. That's to me, that's the best process. 
I, like we reached that exact process last night, Paris, where she wanted to keep going, and it had been an hour and a half, and I'm like, we're no. stopping. We're taking time <laughs> out. We're going to reset. The one, one more girl name, and I'll get to a couple boys' names. My top three. I love this name. She would not even remotely entertain it. Daphne. I think Daphne is a tremendous name. She's like that. I, I, I immediately think of Scooby-Doo. You can't do that. I didn't even think about Scooby-Doo, but you're... <laughs> <laughs> you, can't, you can't name your daughter. Hold after on. Scooby-Doo. Hold on. So you do a radio show like two weeks ago. Yes. And you say, what are common names, first names that are so associated with a certain person that when you hear them... You know, I guess with the exception of unless there's someone in your family or a close friend, like when you hear that name, like that's who you think about. Are you saying that Daphne applies to a cartoon character from the mid 1980s? I'm telling, like that's that's what popped into my head. It's the only thing that popped into my head. I like the 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 whole deal, and this is sort of just how radio goes sometimes. And apparently, it's how podcasts go sometimes too. Um, it's uh, when Aretha Franklin died, and I made the point, like you know, she's one of the people on this planet who you say her first name. And you, everybody knows exactly who you're talking about. You don't have to say the last name. You know, it's it's uh, Aretha, it's Elvis, it's Oprah, and what and, and sort of what I found as I'm talking through it was it's it's super famous people with with rare names. That's who it usually applies to. So from that, I was like, now let's think of super famous people with common names, but still they are it, it the name belongs to them. And I think we ended up coming up with like eight or nine different names that. Dude, I spent way too much time on this. I actually went into the uh, Social Security database, and I found the top 200 names in each decade for the past seven decades. And if you had a top 200 name in any decade for the past seven decades, I made that a common name. And then we tried to find common names that are completely associated, or for the most part, associated with just one person. Can you think of one off the top of your head? Um, I've got them all. Like, I, I know, I, I, I know, but uh, yeah, because we we talked about that. Because I actually tweeted because I actually got I got too too invested. Dude, in people got well. sucked into it. It became like a thing for like thirty straight hours. People were tweeting me nonstop. Hey, I got one. I got one. It's amazing how many people don't understand what a common name is. Right. Like it's just like um, you know they they would I hope I like I I posit to you that Roseanne is not a common name. You said Roseanne. That's not common. Roseanne did not qualify as a common name. That's exactly right. But Roseanne is is one that would work. But yes. it did not qualify. Here's another one that surprised me. Did not qualify as a common name because it would work. Hillary. Right. I tweeted this at you. I was yeah. blown away by that. Blown it away. Never, Hillary- it's never been a top 200 name in any decade. It's been a top 200 name in certain years. This is how much I looked into this stuff. But it's never been a top 200 name for a decade, so it didn't qualify. Some obvious ones, Brittany. Yes, I would say that's fair. Um, uh, Peyton. How about this? You ready? Peyton and Eli. So Eli's been a top 200 name? Yes. Yes. I think it is like this decade it is this or the decade, decade before. Yeah. It's recent. It's recent. But Eli did qualify. Peyton and Eli, um, basically all the Kardashian-Jenners, Chloe qualified as a top 200 name. You only think of her or that um, or that song off the singles soundtrack. Okay. <laughs> do you remember, yes, do you remember do. that? Of course. Of course. Um, Kendall? Kendall Marshall. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I know. Guys. I, know. Jen- I know. I know. Uh, Kylie? 
Kylie definitely. Kylie Minogue. Oh, Kylie Minogue is a massive pop I know. Star. So, yeah, we had an argument about that one. Yeah, okay, yeah. So maybe Kylie doesn't work. Um, Kim? Kim was debatable. Uh, I think it's too common. I th- she, because it's, it, it's also because of the alliteration. Like, people, they say Kanye and Kim or Kim Kardashian. It's the cuh sound that I think emphasizes that. Debatable. Right. Yeah, like people would would uh would text me or or tweet me and be like, "Uh, what about Kanye? Kanye's not a common name. Kanye is one one name recognizable to attach to him because it's Kanye." For the same reason like um Beyoncé. Beyoncé, exactly the same thing. Adele, right. not a common Adele. name. Yeah. Right, not a common name. I would ve- I would venture though that Adele, wherever it was in like 2007, has vaulted massively. For the same reason that maybe there there might be a whole army of Beyonces out there now, the actual existence of these pop stars and their rise in international fame has made those names more common, but still not common enough. But can you? Would you name your kid Beyonce? Even if you like a Beyonce super fan, would you name your the baby Beyonce? Because it seems like it would tot like you, you would totally have a name belonging to another person forever. It feels like naming your daughter Beyonce. Yes, there are like, th- yeah, th- I like, I wouldn't but there are people that there are, dude, how many shacks are in are in the sports world now? You know in 5 years we're going to be overloaded with Kobe's. We're going to see LeBron's in 10 to 12 years. You know that's going to happen. So see, that I, guy, that's the thing. Even LeBron regrets naming his son LeBron. Yeah. I don't know why you would name your son LeBron or Beyonce. It feels like it'd be like naming your 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 son Elvis. Like you right. just like you you could never escape that, right? Which is not awesome. so, which is not so common. I, Elvis, the, who's the only Elvis that you can think of? Is what Elvis Dumerville, uh, the NFL player? Well, Elvis, Elvis Costello. Well, no, I'm talking like I, I guess I was talking more like in the past, like 30 years. But yes, Elvis, yeah. Elvis Costello, and Elvis Dumerville. Those are the only <laughs> Elvises I know. Quite a trio. Anyway, we should get, the, we should get we going. Should. But let, I'm I'm putting this out to the listeners. I won't even get to the boys' names. I I hate. 99% of all boys' names. I, I just can't stand most of them. So if you have a suggestion, feel free to tweet at me. I'm probably not going to like it. We got three or four that we're considering, but this is just... So this is what's been taking over my life, actually, in the past two weeks as we get ready for this, is just we, debating about these freaking names, man. No, it's a nightmare. And, like, I, I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast about... Of course you have. Oliver Pinnell? Of course. <laughs> Oliver Pernell Parish. I wish I would have named You've him Oliver You've told it, like, Purnell. five times, but about it's this? terrific. How about this? Um, our youngest boy, we named Louie. You know, I wanted, you know what I wanted to name him, but Kelly vetoed it? Otis. <sighs> I thought Otis would be a cool name for a little white kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know if you could pull off Otis Parrish. Otis Parrish. I wanted it. She vetoed it. So, anyway, good luck with that. I guess we'll just wait for the birth certificate, right? Hey, real quick on this. Yes. Uh, did you guys fight about whether to find out if you're having a boy or a girl? Did one of you want to do it and the other not? Yes, and for full disclosure, that's where we're at. So she is she is entertaining me right now because she knows what we're having. She knows. Oh no, that's impossible, dude. I would we'd be in a domestic dispute by now. <laughs> I was dead set on not knowing because I like surprises. Don't know if we're gonna you know have a third. Want to have this chance to to be surprised. She is not wired like that whatsoever. Like, she'll open the presents on December 22nd. Like, she just doesn't care. So she has been amazing in going along with this and actually debating me on both. I think because she knows that, you know, one of them 
is not going to happen. So she's imagining like, oh, wow, yeah, no, I, I do like that. Yeah, it, so she gets to actually play along even though she, she knows what it is. Um, I have thoughts one way or the other. I'm, I'm leaning one way a little bit more than the other, but she has, she has said things that have made me believe it's both and said things that in the moment I thought, oh, she just gave it away. And then, you know, a week later she would have said something else. And I was like, nope, I'm totally wrong. She flipped it. It's the other one. So I'm still in the dark, fortunately. But uh, this is this is added to just a completely unnecessary set of circumstances over the past six months. But we've had fun with it regardless. Yeah, no, like Kelly wanted to, I think with our second, like with, with everybody except for our first, she wanted to uh, wait and have a surprise. And I was like, there are too many possible surprises during a birth, um, during a delivery. Like, you know, like I, I'm... I'm I'm immediately checking five toes, five other toes, five fingers, two arms. Like I'm, you know, even though we're so far along with technology now, like yeah, those, dude, they show those, those things on the ultrasound. Yeah, I know, but still, like I want to see it with my own eyes, right? So I don't need some extra surprise about whether it's a boy or a girl. I want to know as soon as we can know. But she wanted to keep it a secret. How about this? For our last child, I wanted a daughter. Like I, 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 you know, we we had two boys. I wanted a daughter. And um, so I, you know, like it was such a high risk pregnancy. I think people are familiar with the story that she had to go to the doctor every week, check up every week. Um, and it got to a point where I went at first, but then ultimately it was just like, there's no need for me to go there, you know, like every single time. And so at some point I'm like, hey, so when are we going to find out if it's a boy or a girl? And she would just kind of put it off and put it off and Finally, I heard her talking to somebody else on the phone, and she they said something that triggered, like in my head, she, she, I think she already knows if it's a boy or a girl. So she gets off the phone, and I'm like, "Yo, I, I was listening. Like, do you know already if it's a boy or a girl?" And she like turned red, and she had known for a month that it was going to be a boy. She just didn't want to tell me because she knew how badly I wanted a girl. I was like, I was like the opposite of Gordon Hayward. Did you see that Gordon Hayward yes. video? He wanted a boy so badly. <laughs> And he found that he was having like a third girl, and he was just like, "Yeah, Daddy's always happy." Oh man, that was that, a classic. That, video. So good. He was so deflated. He wanted a son so bad. He like literally I, hits one of the balloons or kicks it away. <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's a great video. But I was exactly the opposite. So bad that my wife like tried to not tell me we were having another boy because she knew how badly I wanted a girl. Anyway, good luck with that. I'm sure everything will go perfectly. You're going to either have an awesome boy or awesome girl, and then you'll name it something awesome. And then, um, and then you know, it'll be 18 years of, of uh, nervousness and oh, a headache. Can't wait. So so Richard Patino named his son Richard. Why don't we use that as our awkward segue to talk about Patino <laughs> and his, his new book because it has now officially been released. I have not read it. Um... I have spoken with people who have read it. How do you want to set this up? Where do you want to well, springboard this conversation here? Well, well, like I said, today's Wednesday. It came out yesterday. I have uh, read a lot of it, not all of it, but what I have done is read everything that's been written about it, right? Everything that's been in the Louisville Coral Journal, everything at The Athletic, everything at um, So I have a very good grasp of what's there and what's not, um, even if I haven't finished every page myself. And the, the, the one thing is that I don't want to say there's not much there, but if you're going there to gain insight on, you know, everything that went on in, in the Louisville program over the past five years or whatever, like there ain't much there. 
you know, basically the bottom line is, is Rick continues to say he knew nothing about the Andre McGee stripper parties, which I have said a million times. I totally believe if only because it's nonsensical to think he would have known about those and allowed them to go on on that campus in that dorm with those security cameras, like take it off camp. If, if he condoned of major rules violations happening uh, by one of his staff members, he would have also told one of his staff members, get it off campus. Don't be dumb. The fact that that never happened um, suggests to me and has always suggested to me Rick didn't know. He also continues to deny not only not being involved, but not having any awareness whatsoever of the Adidas Brian Bowen situation, which I'm a little more skeptical of. I think at best it's got to be willful blindness. Um, I shouldn't say it's got to be. I mean, I, I guess there's a scenario where he just genuinely was just um, totally oblivious to everything happening around him. But um, it, it seems... I, I don't know. You got to really, you got to really believe in Rick Pitino to to believe that. Um, to me, the most interesting thing is that he has two big opinions about his past and about his future, and I think he's. I don't want to say he's got them wrong. I'll just say that I I disagree on both of them. Um, one is he 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 seems to express real frustration and almost surprised that he was fired. It, it, not only fired, but fired so quickly. And on that, and his his bottom line, I, I guess, would be, you know, I, I didn't do anything. Like, I, I, the, the worst thing I did was hire some bad people. But I didn't do anything wrong. I, do, I wasn't aware of the stripper parties, and I wasn't, I didn't have anything to do with this Adidas thing. And they're taking the word of Christian Dawkins and running with it about what I knew and didn't know, and what power I had and didn't have. And I guess I would argue that once... Two big scandals in such a short period of time happen on your watch. You're you're not going to survive that. I mean, I, like for instance, if if at Ohio if Ohio State football had another scandal within the next two years that just happened on Urban Meyer's watch, Urban Meyer is going to get fired. Urban Meyer is very much in a situation like Rick Pitino was after the stripper parties. Like, yo, you might not have technically did anything wrong, but this this all this stuff was happening on your watch. If some more wild stuff happens on your watch. It's time to go. I think that is where Urban Meyer is at now, and it's where Rick was after the stripper stuff. And so when, if nothing else, you've got somebody you hired, an assistant coach, on video discussing a pay-for-play scheme involving Brian Bowen, that's just too much. You know, like either you're hiring terrible people or you're you're instructing them to do things or you're not you know, convincing them that that doing those things is is totally off the table now. Even if they might have been on the table once once upon a time. In fairness, Rick writes in the book that he told Jordan Fair, "We do not do anything outside of the rule book." And yeah, and whether that's true or not, you know, who knows? But that is what he says. But once something like that happens on your watch, then you're not going to survive. You're not going to keep that job. So where Rick is surprised he was fired, I think it would have been shocking if he wasn't fired. Um, on the other hand, he seems to express doubt about whether he'll ever coach again at the Division One level, and I do think there's a decent chance he coaches again at the Division One level if nobody who used to work for Adidas, who's now facing federal crimes, ever testifies that Rick was aware of the Adidas Brian Bowen situation. Um, to this date, there is no evidence that Rick Pitino was involved or aware. It's just like you just. To the extent people think he was, it's just from a common sense perspective, like, yo, man, how could you not have been aware of it unless you were covering your eyes and covering your ears and 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 going way out of your way not to know. But but 
to this point, there is no evidence. I mean, when Rick says that, he is right. And so I think if the Adidas people end up flipping or testifying or whatever happens next, and they actually, when asked about Rick, say that Rick didn't know. Rick wasn't involved. We didn't involve Rick. I think, you know, in a year or two, somebody somebody will offer Rick Pitino a job, whether he takes it or not. And so I guess that's my 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 big takeaway from from the book. He doesn't think he should have been fired. I don't think he could have survived it. He doesn't think he's going to coach again. I think there's a decent chance he does. All right, I'll start with the coaching. Uh, I think there is a chance that he can and will. Uh, listen, Patino over the years has made a habit, unintentionally or not, of declaring things that wound up just not being true in regard to his own profession, his own career. I mean, you go back, you know, four or five years ago, he says <laughs> this wound up – hold on. Can I Google this in real time? Hold on. He said something like he did not think that he would coach beyond 2017. I want to say that I might my brain might be twisting that into uh, into reality when it's fiction. But do you remember he was like, "Yeah, I'm not going to coach th- this many more years." And he I do had, remember something like that. He had said stuff like that before in the past. So when it comes to his job or his career, his profession, and what he will or will not stick to. I, I just don't believe him. So if he says like, yeah, just you know, I, I you don't write a memoir unless you think your coaching career is over. That means nothing to me. I I could easily if he is allowed an opportunity in the next one to four years to coach uh, in Division One basketball, and he wants to, and I believe that he still wants to. I think that he will do that. So it was interesting to see him uh, saying as much. He's obviously been on a bit of a, a PR book tour here with the release of this. Um, I don't find much value in reading something like this. I was told that he does not even address the FBI stuff until about page 175 in this book, which is outrageous <laughs> and unthinkable. Uh, apparently, he sets it up with a lot of his background with BU, getting jobs, coming out of Hawaii, uh, going to the Knicks and all that stuff. Um, but overall, this book is not going to alter his public reputation. Why is he writing this? Because he feels this need to try and fix his image as much as he possibly can. But at the same time, he's got to know that it's he's just not going to succeed in that venture. It's it, it is interesting, and by the way, it comes. It's I won't say it was hastily put together because I don't know that. Only the timeline would suggest that. But for for this all to happen, for Patino to get fired and pushed out last fall, to to go through a subsequent lawsuit, and to write this book, and and by the way, you know, just a peek behind the curtain for some listeners, Patino sought out uh, many writers to write this book with him. He was he was trying to get this done. Um, as fast as possible, with as big of a name as possible. Um, and I think ultimately this, this falls a little bit short. You're going to have a short burst uh, of publicity here. He doesn't take accountability for the things that, that so many people believe that he should. And so ultimately what he doesn't uh, own up to in this book, as some coaches told told me when we were doing our Candid Coaches series, you know that might wind up being what g- 
cost him any opportunity to do it. Like there, if, if I'm an athletic director and I'm considering hiring Patino, I'm absolutely reading this book as part of my background material in addition to so many other things. But if I come away from reading this book saying here was his opportunity to set any further things straight that needed to be set straight or own up to anything, he's still not doing it there um, in a public forum, that potentially uh, could, could get in the way of, of my hiring process overall. It, it is it is fascinating to see him continue to do this. Um, I don't know if this is uh, the death rattle of his uh, coaching career in terms of is this the last thing that we're going to talk about with Rick Pitino in regard to him wanting to coach again or, or this scandal in, in a widespread way. I don't know, to be honest. I get the sense that there will be the occasional headline from him in the coming years because uh, part of that is just Rick. Part of me thinks that he might try and get back into – um, commentating on basketball. You'll recall that he did that very briefly uh, in the past and was considered good at it. I mean, we talked about how good of a coaching mind he is, Parrish. I mean, if uh, television executives think that he is worth putting on television for one reason or another, perhaps that's something he would consider as well. Um, but I don't know, man. This, this ultimately seems fruitless but it does add another chapter to all of this and obviously we we wait to see with this court case upcoming multiple ones if louisville or patino's name is brought out in any more context we simply don't know if that's going to be the case right now or not yeah i don't think the book hurts him at all but i also don't think it helps him at all other than like in ways that it might actually help him um I saw some comments from Richard Patino, and Richard um, said, you know, it was cathartic for him. You know, like, just, just A, it gives him something to do. That's the other thing. Like, he's bored. I, I, I think it was Seth Davis spent some time with, with Rick recently on California, and, um, and, you know, he describes, like, he fills his days up with golf and exercise and dinners with friends because, like, the idle time, is he's not good with it. And so... Um, you know, like, you know, I think writing the book gave him something to do. It took hours out of the day, um, and so that, that that I think it helped him in that way. But in terms of public perception, I don't believe the book really helps at all. Like I wrote in the column, you can read over at CBS Sports. At this point, you either believe Rick Pitino or you don't, and there's nothing he can say or write to change anybody's mind because, you know. On a very basic level, he can't prove his innocence. Like, if you think he is guilty of major NCAA rules violation or running a program outside of the rule book or encouraging or at least not discouraging assistance from you know, breaking rules, then you believe that. And there's no way he can prove to you that he's not that guy. Um, there is still to this day, and I do think this is a point if I were him, I would keep making. Still to this day, there is no evidence he ever knew about Andre McGee and what was happening. And still to this day, he never knew about the – there's no evidence that he, he knew about the Brian Bowen situation. But it doesn't mean he didn't know. I, I believe on the first one, he didn't for reasons I've already stated. On the second one, and this is sort of what I wrote, it's a little more difficult to believe he wasn't aware unless he went way out of his way to not be aware because, you know, by his own admission – they weren't recruiting Brian Bowen. He gets a phone call, May 2017, from a sketchy character, Christian Dawkins, 
who's like, would you be interested in this five-star prospect McDonald's All-American? Rick's like, sure, of course. Brian Bowen and his family are unofficially visiting on their own dime within days, committing less than a month later. Like, as Rick described it back then, he's like, I've never been that lucky in recruiting. Well, that's because you don't get that lucky in recruiting. I, I As I write, I think it's nearly impossible to be as bright as Rick is and to have that recruitment and, and to have an understanding of how recruiting works and have that recruitment work the way that recruitment worked and not go, all right, what's going on here? Like, you, you, you have to imagine an agent, one of your assistants, a shoe company, Somebody is, is, has done a deal outside of the NCAA rulebook because five-star prospects just do not fall into your lap like that. Um, so you, you either know or you don't ask questions because you don't want to know the answers. You just want to go ahead and get this, this five-star prospect enrolled and, and, and you know, cover your eyes and cover your ears. And so uh, you know, that's at least what I believe in, in that situation. But, but either way, you know, the, the book is the book, and – uh, like I said, I don't know that it, it, it hurts him. In fact, I don't think it does, but I, I don't think it helps him in any real hey, way. Before we transition real quick here, uh, prophetic, pro- pro- prophetic Patino was December 27, 2011. Patino says he won't coach past 2016-2017 season. When you're 59, you're realistic that you don't have a lot of, whole lot of years left. My contract's going to run out in 2017. I'm not coaching anymore after that. That's kind of freaky, um, but I for some reason, that stuck out to me. Indeed, that wound up being the case. And so here we are. Uh, meantime, you wrote a uh, column about Loyola Chicago coming off that Final Four, um, putting together in their non-league schedule, and just about how they, they couldn't get anything done. You know, they reached out to basically every top 75 team in the country, projected top 75 team in the country, and they just couldn't get anything done. And... Um, you know, it's just it's a problem with mid-major basketball programs, even the good ones, that um, scheduling um, in a way that gives yourself, I guess in this era, quadrant one opportunities is damn near impossible if the perception is that you're going to be good. And I think Loyola Chicago is expected to be good again. They lost, I believe, three uh, key players, but they're still, you know, a borderline top 25 team, top 40 team. I think they'd be in everybody's top 40. And if you're in everybody's top 40, the big boys don't want nothing to do with you. They're not agreeing to a home-and-home. Home. They they really don't even want to play a, um, on a neutral, although Maryland is going to. Um, and you you tweeted yesterday while, while uh, providing a link to the column that it almost – the sport still sometimes feels like it's rigged. And, and I retweeted it with you know the comment – something along the lines of the reason it feels that way is because it is rigged or at least it's tilted. You know, this has been the game for a long time. The big boy conferences, they refuse to schedule quality mid-majors. And then when Selection Sunday is approaching and you're sitting at 26 wins, they scream about how you haven't played anybody. But the only reason you haven't played anybody is because nobody will play you. And it's just a a, a incredibly difficult cycle, and Loyola Chicago uh, wasn't able with, with this schedule to, to break it. Yes, um, my when I saw their schedule, their non-conference schedule, Parish. My first takeaway was well, at first I saw they released it, and I thought, okay, here's an opportunity for college basketball to follow up just a tremendous classic epic final four fantasy type of run not just because they had a great buzzer beaters and and last second shots but 
This is a program that had won a national championship so long ago, you know, an epoch ago. It had a 98-year-old nun, and that really was uh, such a humongous part of the 2018 NCAA tournament. How is Loyola going to be able to follow this up and provide us with reasons to watch them a year, our season removed from that run? And so I bring up the schedule, and I wasn't shocked to see who was on it. And I want to be clear, the schedule isn't horrible. What the schedule lacks is 2018 NCAA tournament teams, and it lacks teams from, you know, my term here basically, major seven conferences with the exception of Maryland, who is only playing them this season, is playing them technically on a neutral, but it is a it is a default home game. It's being played in Baltimore. They won't return. Porter Moser, I asked him, I said, listen, in your situation, you know, do you consider going two-for-ones? Just do a two-for-one, which means if you're playing against a major conference opponent, you got to go to their place twice. they got to come to yours once. And he said, I could consider doing that, and I have considered doing that, and maybe I still will do that. But scheduling multiple two-for-ones is not a way to sustain momentum within your program. It's not a way to grow your program. You do that enough, you're going to find yourself completely beaten up in the non-conference and then giving yourself absolutely zero wiggle room if you play in a Missouri Valley type of league here. So for the benefit of my team, I can't do that. I would rather try and get home and homes or maybe a a neutral, neutral or whatever I can do. And to me, it was surprising that more coaches didn't see Loyola. And this is where I think the changing is going to have to happen. The mindset of a lot of coaches in college basketball, they don't see Loyola as an opportunity for uh, good publicity, a solid resume win, and if they were to lose, which frankly, with so many, so many of these teams, if they had the game on their home floor or even a neutral, wouldn't be exceedingly likely. And I know they won at Florida last year, and I'll get to that uh, in a minute here. Um, but th- they see Loyola as a loss that could severely damage their their resume or their ranking. When frankly, that's just not going to be the case. Even if you wanted to lowball Loyola, in my opinion, because they do lose some important players from last year's Final Four team. Even if you wanted to lowball them and say they're going to be the third best team in the Valley this year, I still think that will qualify them uh, as a top 75 type team. It would still qualify them uh, as a quad one or a solid quad two type of opponent. And we are still in a mode where coaches are resistant to playing those types of opponents and would rather try and load up um, load up in the non-conference with games they know that they can win or games that they're contracted into. Uh, you've got conferences expanding their league schedules to 20 games. We've already gotten there with the Big Ten. The ACC's going there. And I think the SEC and the Pac-12 are going to go there as well. Um, it, it's just an unfortunate thing for college basketball. Yes, the tournament will go on. Yes, we'll still enjoy the season. Yes, there'll be so many awesome things to talk about. But damn, it would be amazing if we looked up and had three games where Loyola was playing good opponents in November and December because it just it adds some spice to that early part of the season and gives us, listen, we all want to see the top 25 programs. That's what matters most. But you can't tell me there wouldn't be interest in seeing Loyola a season removed from the Final Four playing a really good team just like there wouldn't be some interest if you could catch on ESPN2, CBS Sports Network, UMBC playing a really good opponent. If you want to compare, UMBC opens at Marquette and then they play at Penn State. Otherwise, the only other decent game in there is Florida Gulf Coast that's being played in Baltimore. And 
UMBC is not on the level that Loyola is. So I, I understand that they might be able to get one or two more power conference teams because, frankly, the power conference teams are only going to play those teams on their home floor. See UMBC as a team that they will be able to beat uh, and don't see them as much of a threat. Loyola lands in that weird, sticky spot. They aren't established for six or seven years to where if you play them, you know it's going to be uh, a really good win, and if you lose, it's not going to kill you. They're just coming off this. But at the same time, I, I, college coaches got to stop being so afraid to play these types of schools. Uh, and as I said in my column, you know, they reached out to about 20 schools directly from major conferences, and every school in a major conference knew Loyola was trying to schedule. So basically almost everyone dodged. I will credit Turgeon for really scheduling them, but – they won't return the game. It's only for this year, and they won't return the game the year after when Loyola isn't – they're not expected to be better next season. So if you were even going to play Loyola on the road, you'd be playing an easier team. It's an unfortunate thing for college basketball, and yes, the game absolutely in this regard still feels rigged, and it's on the selection committee to try and put these kinds of things into context so that if we get to Loyola again next season, Parrish, and we're at the first week of March, and they have – five, six losses, and you look at how they stack up against other teams, as as Moser told me, like I would hope that the committee is aware right now of what's happened. I tried to schedule these teams. They would not they would not schedule us. So if we're right on that bubble, you should hopefully give us the benefit of the doubt because we were not even getting the opportunity to play those better teams. It, you and I will agree that it's, it's unfortunate, you know, especially unfortunate from the mid-major perspective that – that you can't get games if you're good. I mean, it really, it you know, if you're not in a top seven league, and we identify those as the Power Five leagues plus the Big East plus the American Athletic, um, it, it's it's hard to get games unless you're Gonzaga, unless you're. I mean, it might it might all, you know yeah. might just be Gonzaga, maybe UNLV because it's still a big brand, yeah. but it's it's difficult to to get games. Um. And so that that's an unfortunate part of this sport. But here's the truth. If I'm Maryland, I'm not going to Loyola Chicago. Because as much as it might be a neat little basketball story to to go play this school the 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 mid-major school that went to the 2018 Final Four, it, it doesn't resonate with your fans the way any other home and home series Maryland could get. You know, Maryland could schedule home and homes with Power 5 schools. So, and 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 it, it, that's better for the networks. Like if you, if you want to be on ESPN or CBS Sports, you much better off ske- scheduling a game against another big brand Power Five school than you are Loyola Chicago or some NBC school. You just are. It's the truth. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's true. You know, I, I've had these conversations with television executives who happen to be my bosses. You know, they they can appreciate. They loved UMBC knocking off Virginia in the round of 64, because that's a massive story. They don't want UMBC winning another game. They don't want Loyola Chicago in the Final Four. They want Kentucky and Ohio State and UCLA in, in, in Indiana. They want those teams to, to hang. That's why when John Calipari goes on these rants about how he thinks the selection committee is out to get him, like there, 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 there's, there is nothing – I'm just telling you the truth. There is nothing CBS would like more than for Kentucky to be in the national championship game every year. 
it, it, there, there's no scenario where anything would ever be rigged against Kentucky because Kentucky's good for television. Kentucky's good for numbers. And, and, and Loyola Chicago's just, you know, or schools like that, they're just not. You know, like George Mason going to the Final Four, awesome story, terrible for television. And so let's just say if you're Mark Turgeon, or let's forget Mark Turgeon. Let's just talk about any – let's say that for the purposes of this uh, conversation, Loyola Chicago tried to schedule Indiana. If you're Archie Miller, you're like, okay, well, it's much harder to get a game against Loyola Chicago on TV than it would be, you know, if we just go out and schedule Maryland or um, uh, you know, Villanova or anything else you could do with one of the power leagues. It, so from a television perspective, it doesn't make much sense for – a power conference school to, to go do that. And, you know, and, and from a fan base perspective, it doesn't make much sense for a power conference school to do that. So while if I were Porter, I would be frustrated and especially frustrated if I'm sitting there at 20, whatever wins on selection Sunday, but I'm lacking quadrant one wins primarily because I lacked quadrant one opportunities. Like I get the frustration I'm just saying there's no way if I were coaching in the Big 12 or the ACC or wherever, there's no way I would do a home-and-home with with Loyola Chicago or anybody like Loyola Chicago. I think and hope that that mindset gets changed in the future so that coaches are inclined or implored to schedule high-level mid-major teams in series or in neutrals so that they know that they won't be dinged, and if they win, they'll be sufficiently rewarded. Because you're right, if Indiana's weighing playing Villanova versus Loyola, it's not worth it. But put those on even play. I'm saying playing anybody from a Power Five. No, no I disagree. If Indiana is debating playing Loyola, a likely top fifty team, versus playing, well, I don't mean that. Uh, don't mean literally anybody. I know, no, I was, no, no. But you're saying any power. So versus playing Cal, which probably won't be a top 100 team, they should play Loyola instead. There is so much more benefit to that. And you got the, a better the shot of fan base. It's not going to be the Indiana Loyola fan base doesn't care if they're playing Cal more than if they play Loyola. Loyola is coming off a of Final Four. They have much more buzz appeal. No one can name anyone that's playing for the Cal Golden Bears. No offense to Cal. There is clearly more of a there would be more of an interest, particularly because if you're giving Indiana specifically, those are relatively local. They're both in the Midwest. Indiana, obviously, there's a lot of big fan base in Chicago where Loyola is located. So there is some actual benefit there, and there would be interest in playing a team like that coming off a of Final Four versus a number of teams from major conferences who don't rate nationally. I, I, I When I say anybody from Power Five, I don't mean literally anybody. But let's say a, a, a top 100, any power five top 100 school if if i'm the head coach at indiana or any power five five school i would i would do that home and home before i did one with loyola chicago i don't mean to disparage loyola chicago i'm just telling you from from a schedule because i i feel sick for them like it's it sucks to be in the situation they're in they've got this momentum they've got a quality team coming back they're willing to 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 do a home and home with anybody they're willing to start it on the road and they can't get a taker i i, I understand that that that's that sucks. What I'm also telling you is that I wouldn't take them. I, I wouldn't do it. And so I've had this conversation with other coaches outside of the power structure. Like I went down to Florida and spoke to the Atlantic 10 coaches, and we spoke a lot about the selection process and about how difficult scheduling is. And my suggestion to them, and not that I'm in any uh, position to be telling college basketball coaches how to schedule, but since they asked, I, I said, 
here's what I would do. I would start. You got it. You you, 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 you keep saying, and and perhaps you're right. I, I hope I hope you're right. I, I don't. I'd, I'd be surprised though that uh, there will be something put in place to encourage power five programs to schedule quality mid-major programs i just don't think that's going to happen you're not going to you know scheduling is going to get more difficult not not less difficult because conferences are going to 20 game league schedules and that's going to be less opportunities for quality non-league games because you're going to have because all the big boys are going to have x amount of, of buy games so the likelihood of being somebody like loyola chicago and getting a home and home with you know, power five schools is, is going to decrease over time. It's not going to increase. And so if you're a mid-major coach or just a coach outside of the power structure, I, I think you, you can do this one of two ways. You can keep trying every year to schedule home and homes with power five schools and keep failing every year because they're not going to play you and then keep complaining about it every year. Or you can adjust to reality, not because you think you should, but because you have to. And so my advice to some of the A-10 coaches was like, listen, I know you think your program is above being a buy game, but you're not going to get the home and homes you want. So I'd go be a buy game. I, I know that you think your program is above doing two-for-ones, but you're not going to get one-for-ones. So I'd go do two-for-ones. Because the only alternative to what I'm describing is sitting around you know, in championship week and and complaining because nobody would play you, and so that's why you don't have these these wins. And Mark Schmidt um, at St. Bonaventure, like he was in the room with me, and he was like, D you know, that's what we did. We went and got bought by Syracuse. We beat them, and that's why we made the NCAA tournament. And I think uh, rather than complaining about not getting scheduled, I, I think you've got to adjust. And if you've got a quality mid major team like Loyola Chicago is going to be this year, then I would be willing, I think, to go be people's go, – go do a couple of buy games like at, at big-name programs who would be happy to pay you, you know, $100,000 to come play them. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean and, – and then, and then go play the games. And if you lose them, it won't hurt you because you're still going to have to win your auto bid to get to the tournament. And if you win them, now you got a chance at an at-large. Yes and no. So here's the last thing to wrap this up with. They couldn't even get some of the big teams to schedule them this year for, for a one and out at home because they're too afraid oh. to play them in general. And Evans – and then here's, here's why – Oh, I, I agree with that, but they could have got somebody. I, th I think they could have gotten somebody to take them as a buy. Well, and then, and then get this. So last year, before anyone knew what Loyola was going to be, how good it was going to be, NC State fires Mark Gottfried. It hires Kevin Keats. Right. Kevin Keats buys out of a $170,000 contract to play Loyola, to go on the road and play at Loyola. And backdrop to all this that needs to be mentioned, and I don't think I got into the column, Loyola at home has, defeat, has defeated the likes of San Diego State, Creighton, and like another decent team from a big conference in recent years. So it is established that winning in that building, if you're a, if you're a power conference team, it's not a gimme. So that also needs to be context that needs to be brought into here. So perhaps Kevin Keats sees that in his first year. He buys out of it. I hate the move, but whatever happens. So then Loyola can't get anyone to come and play at their building. So what, the, what does Moser have to do? He has to get bought. He goes to Florida. He wins the game. Against right. an eventual six seed, and by the way, if you remember, like Florida was on track to potentially even be as high as a fourth. They even still win the game. And yet, conventional thought was that if Loyola did not win the Missouri Valley Championship, automatic bid, it still wouldn't have gotten in. So you really get a sense of how 
heavily in how high the deck can be stacked against these programs, you get screwed out of a home-and-home. You go out and play a road game anyway against a traditionally great program like Florida. You manage to win that game. You have a really good season. You lose once between January 3rd and Selection Sunday. You lose one game. And yet, had you lost at the buzzer in the Missouri Valley Championship, you're probably going to the NIT instead. It's it's so damn frustrating from the outside for these coaches. I understand every point you're bringing up. I believe that coaches need to be a little more level-headed and a little less scaredy-cat and a little less paranoid about the fact that if we play Loyola and we lose them against them on the road in a year where they're a top 50, top 60 team, it's going to damage us because, frankly, I don't think that it will. And the the advent of the quad quadrant system, this new NET ranking, I think we'll look up in three or four years. Scheduling will be tougher, but I think we'll see that the teams that play those games won't be as affected. And one more shout-out here. this This whole thing isn't completely dead. There's still hope out there. North Carolina will open its season this year playing at Wofford, who is going to be a really good team. And in my opinion, Fletcher McGee can start for almost any program in the country. So they're, And Tad Boyle at Colorado. Tom Izzo in the past has done this. There are still coaches who will occasionally give a home-and-home home to a mid-major. Those coaches deserve credit because it is a dying breed, but it still does exist. It's just rarer and rarer by the year. Yeah, like uh, Roy is is really one of the best, if not the best at that. Like He's not afraid or hesitant to take his – uh, program on the road to play a, a mid-major, and, and sometimes it's tied to he's want to take he wants to take one of his players back to their hometown or their you know their their a, a region from which they're from. Um, so he'll do it. Tom, I, I think Michigan State's played at Oakland. You know, like uh, that Tom will do it. Um, there are some coaches who will still do it, and like yeah, I, I'm with you. Tip of the hat to them, but I guess I'd, I'd bottom line it this way: I wish more would. But I understand why more don't. And if I were running a, a if I were running NC State, I wouldn't be scheduling home and homes with with programs like Loyola Chicago. Like I, I, I it sucks for Loyola Chicago, but I completely understand it. And if you want to change the system, put a petition in front of me, I'll sign it. But given that I don't think the system's gonna change drastically, then I I think it would be wise for the mid major coaches to adjust to this reality. Um, even if you think it's it's beneath you, you know. It, it, ultimately, on Selection Sunday, there's going to be a, a a screen in front of a committee member, and it's going to have what you did. And I don't think there's going to be a note on the team sheet that says, "Oh, by the way, tried real hard to schedule home and homes, just couldn't get any." <laughs> like ultimately, it comes down to what have you what have you done, what have you not done, and you've got to give yourself opportunities. It would be ideal for those opportunities to be home and home situations, but given that you can't get them by your own admission. Then, then you got to do something else. Other, otherwise, you, you you might find yourself in an unfortunate situation uh, on Selection Sunday. But we can continue this debate another time. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry M. F. and Deagle, the legend. And remember, please go subscribe to the Iron College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcast. Rate it favorably. Five stars. Five stars. Nice comments. That's all we ask. It really takes 20 seconds to go do that. So do me a favor. Do that. And we will talk to you again next week as long as Norlander doesn't have a boy or a girl by then. I'll keep you updated. So will he. Uh, Until next time, take care.